Every week as I'm standing out there, someone comes up to me and says, man, why were you preaching to me today? My mic sound weird to you guys? Sounds super weird to me. It's real echoey up here, but okay, we'll just roll with it. Um, someone comes up to me afterwards and they're like, uh, man, you were preaching to me. They said, I'm going to take that honor away from you today and go ahead and tell you I am preaching to myself today. If there's ever an issue that I struggle with, it will be the issue that we're talking about today, especially as it pertains to the subject of love. And if there was ever a time in our society where our country just needed to love, it's right now. When I get the wild hair one day to run for president, I haven't broke that to Christine yet, I will run on the campaign of just love. As you study the Bible, one thing you'll learn very quickly about Jesus, and I am no theologian, I am not a Bible scholar, but it doesn't take a theologian or a Bible scholar to read very quickly and realize that Jesus didn't care too much for the way things had already been done. He was not a traditionalist. He was not shaped by the way things had always been. He, he was not a religious person. In every sense of the word, Jesus was the first rebel. We think of rebel as a bad person. Rebel's a person who goes against the norm. And the norm in this time was to be judgmental, to follow rules, to be judged or looked at by how well or how not well you followed the do's and the don'ts of the law. Jesus came along and he was a rebel in every sense of the word. He, he didn't care who he offended. He didn't care who got upset. He had one mission and one mission only, and that was to carry out the mission that he was called to do when he got to earth. The religious of the day came along and said, man, an eye for an eye, and Jesus came along and rebelled against that and said, just love. Turn the other cheek. The religious of the day said, don't commit adultery. And Jesus came along and said, just love, man. Don't even think about it. Don't, don't even have the thoughts about it. The religious of the day were all about rules. And Jesus came along and said, listen, it's all about the relationship. Jesus made it very clear that, that what he was teaching was contrary to what was being taught. And because it was contrary to be what was being taught, it was a very hard thing to live out. Most famous verse in all the Bible, I've used it every week of this series, John 3, 16, says, For God so loved the world. It doesn't matter if you never grew up in church. Chances are real good you've seen this verse. You've seen it on a bumper sticker. You've seen it on a t-shirt. You've seen it on a big bed sheet at a football game. You've seen it under Tim Tebow's eyes. You've seen John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave us one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's one of those verses, matter of fact, dare I say, that we've seen so much that we miss the meaning of it. We can recite it. We know it. And sometimes... 
When you become some, so familiar with something, it almost loses its impact because we just recite it from memory instead of passion. It's a powerful verse. It's a simple verse. But I think because we've seen it so much, we don't fully grasp the meaning of this verse. The God of the universe, the God who spoke everything into existence, the God, capital G, so loved the world. Not so loved America. The world. Not so loved white people. He so loved the world. Not so loved just black people. He so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave. And he gave the most incredible gift ever, the gift of his son who came to earth and lived in perfection and paid the price for our sins. Everybody. The world means every single person Our God loves that person. So guess what that means? Are you ready for this? And here's where it gets real hard for me. That means he loves... Oh, I hate this. The people that I don't like. The people who have screwed me over. The people that have hurt me. The people that have done things to my family. The people that I have literally, and I know what you're going to say, it's not very pastor-like. I'm sorry, I'm just being honest with you today. The people that I have visualized snapping their necks. You say, you visualized that? Oh, so many times. (laughs) So many times. I'm talking about those people that you haven't thought about in years. And you're out and you just see them across the grocery store aisle and your blood begins to boil through your arms and your fist begins to clench. And everything they ever did to you comes running back into your mind. The people, dare I say, that in our flesh we hate, God loves them too. I don't like it. If I was God, I wouldn't operate that way. Probably why I'm not. Probably one of the many reasons I'm not God. It means everybody. I used to always say God loves everyone, and that's awesome. That's why He's God. I'm not God, therefore I don't get to love everybody. I don't have to love everybody. But the problem with that is, then I come along and keep reading the Bible after John 3, 16. I get over to John chapter 13, and I shared this verse with you last week, and it says this. By this, by what? By this, what he's fixing to tell you, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So then that kind of squelches the Gary Lamb flesh where I'm like, I'm not God, and I don't have to love everyone. God comes along and says, hey... People are going to know whether you're a follower of me by how you love one another. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, God, how about you know I'm your disciple because, man, I've devoted my life to teaching your word. 
He says, ah, that's cool, but no. I want to know how you love people. Hey, God, how about the fact that week after week after week, I give my finances to support your work? That's cool. No. Hey, God, how about the fact that every day I get into your word and I hear what you're trying to say and I actually pray to you and I tell other people about you? And he's like, that's cool. That's easy. No. He says, people are going to know whether you're a follower of me by how you love one another. How you love the world. One another is not just those who think like us, look like us, act like us, believe like us, vote like us, smell like us. It's it's everybody, even those that we hate. Trust me, I've read this book looking for a loophole. I've read it frontwards to backwards, backwards to front. I've read it so many times, and I've just got to tell you, because in my flesh, I don't like it. I look for loopholes to the commands of God. Because I have some people that I hate. And I don't want to love them. I don't want to be good to them. I don't want to be nice to them. I want to do what comes natural. And I want to hate them because they hurt me. They hurt someone I love. They lied. They betrayed me. They did whatever. They weren't loyal. I'm a loyalty person. My wife and I had a discussion about loyalty this morning over a product. I'm loyal to products. So you have issues. I know. I get it. Says I'm I'm to love all people. And I can't read this book and find anywhere where we're not called to love. We're called to love regardless of anything, even if we don't like the person. And the problem is, is Jesus was never a haphazard person in his commands. He was all in, and he was all in with the command of love. And his teaching, it was so radical, especially the teaching of love, that he was crucified for it. He was countercultural. He came along and said this in Matthew 5. But I tell you, love your enemies. I just don't understand the Bible. It's so complicated. Then you're an idiot if you don't understand this verse. It's not complicated. I don't got to break it down in the Greek for you. I don't got to go to the original language for you. I don't have to decipher for it. I don't have to read the verses before or after. I don't have to give you the context of it. It means love your enemies. But Gary, what does enemies mean in the original language? It means enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I hate this verse. I can't stand it. I don't want to live it out. But it's not a buffet. I don't get to pick and choose. I don't get to just throw the macaroni on my plate and the steak on my plate and miss out on the green beans. You got to eat this stuff too. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
And then here's the worst part about it. He doesn't just say it one time. He comes back in Luke 6 and says this. But to you who are listening, how many of you are listening today? How many of you listening? Raise your hand, raise your hand. Everybody's listening. If you're not listening, punch the person who doesn't have their hand raised. And tell them to wake up. So here's the deal. Now you're part of this. You're listening, so you've got to listen and do what he says. He says, but to those of you who are listening, love your enemies. Now not only do i got to love them, but do good to those who hate you. I hate this verse. Because then he says it's not enough just to love. You've got to do good to them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. He just goes deeper and deeper. He takes it a whole nother level. He says, not only do you love, bam, let me give you some bullet points. He's preaching a sermon right here, four points in a poem. Man, persecute. He, and then he says, let me give you an example. In case you have any questions, because I know you guys are going to be looking for the loophole. He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, Turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is hard. Then he goes down to verse 32 and says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that? Big freaking deal. Man, those guys are on Team Gary. You love them. Big deal. It's easy to love people who love you. How about that guy over there who's talking smack about you, who's staring you down? He says, you got to love that person too. If you love those who love you, what credit does that do? He says, even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Big deal. Doing a fundraiser for Jim Bob over here. He's a good dude. Cool, you should, but big deal. How about doing a fundraiser for Sam over here, who everybody knows is a jerk and an a-hole and ripped off everybody in the community, but now he's got cancer and he's down on his luck and he has nobody. That's what he's saying here. Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that? Ooh, big deal, everyone. Even sinners lend to sinners, expect them to be repaid. But love your enemies, do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father's merciful. Aren't you glad God's merciful to us? <laughs> wow. Because here's the funny thing. This ain't even part of my notes. And I already got a long sermon, so I really shouldn't rabbit trail today. Hope the crock pot's on low. For all the people you hate because they did you wrong, guess what? There's people you did wrong. There's a long list of people that I have screwed over. I've grown. I've matured. Some of it wasn't even intentionally. There's a long line of people that I have hurt. There's a long line of people who have every right to hate me. You say, really? Yeah, I mean, I, I can one-up you. Just go Google my name. You'll find there's a list of it. It's public. At least when you hurt them, they don't feel like they've got to start campaigns against you. Man, I've I got lists. I get it. 
We've all hurt people and I all had people hurt us. And God comes along and says, just love. And I love that he hammers this point because I'm hard-headed and I need it hammered. And they say the congregation takes on the personality of the pastor. So guess what? That means you're probably hard-headed and you need it. And if I know anything about this crowd, I know this is a loyalty group. And man, man, we don't do good with those that we don't love. We're the kind of crowd that speaks. If we don't like someone, no one ought to like them. That's just how we're wired. I get it. I'm with you. But we're being unbiblical when we do that, and that sucks. He has to hammer it over and over and over. Jesus says, just love even those who've hurt us, betrayed us, done us dirty. Just love even those we just flat out don't like. You ever just met someone you don't like them? I have. Some of us are sitting out here today. There's just people that sometimes I meet and just don't like. It's okay. But we're still to love. My wife tells me all the time, I love you. But I'm going to be honest with you, I don't like you right now. Cool. I get it. As long as you still got that love going on. This is hard for me. I got to be honest, it's probably the hardest part of the Bible for me. It's hard. It's a struggle. It's an area I think I've grown in over the years, but it's a struggle for me to love those that have hurt me, cheated me, gossiped about me, stabbed me in the back. But here's the funny thing I've learned over the years. Don't miss this. As hard as it is for me to love those I can't stand, me hating them and having a grudge towards them takes more of a toll on me than it does them. Here's why. They don't get up every day and think about the fact that Gary Lamb hates them. I get up every day thinking about it. Something triggers something in my head throughout the day, and I'm reminded about it. I obsess over it. I look for scoops on them because I want to hear that things are going bad in their life. They ain't thinking about me. They ain't worried about me. Those that have hatred toward I run into people occasionally in this town. I haven't seen in 12 years who will have nothing to do with me. Christine and I were out to eat on a Valentine's one time. And the worship pastor from my previous church, I would say his name, but I won't because we're a lot broadcasting live here. But we know who he is. He was the same worship pastor when I was there. Gets seated down next to us at a restaurant. Twelve years. And they asked to be moved. I chuckled to myself because I thought, I haven't even thought about this joker in 12 years and he can't even swallow a steak sitting next to me. He's so disgusted. That must be miserable. He must hate every time he sees a sponsored ad on Facebook for one of my events. I've just taken up residence in his head and I'm not even thinking about him. See, when we hold on to grudge, it affects us. It's like being imprisoned. We're waiting, and we love this saying, ah, vengeance is a dish best served cold. See, we've got to hold on to the vengeance. Got to wait for it to get cold. That's miserable. 
It affects everyone around us. Being angry and hating someone only affects me. They're not thinking about me. I'm thinking about them. But God says, I want you to love even your enemies. So many of us think it's impossible, but I'm here to tell you, I'm going to give you step by step. I'm going to give you a great story from the Bible and show you that it's not. Now, we need to understand something. These verses are not talking about some emotional, mushy feeling that we get when we think of the word love. This love is talking about caring and doing good for someone even when we don't want to. I think the greatest example of this being played out is found in the Old Testament in the life of David. I love David. David by far is probably my favorite person in all the Bible, man, because he goes through so much and his life is just a train wreck. And yet he says he had a heart of God, the same heart as God had. I, I, I dig that. The story is about David and King Saul and David has come along, and if you remember David, David killed Goliath, he killed the giant. Saul was the, was, I almost said Saul was the president. Saul was the king, and he brings David into his house. And it says as he brings him in for Samuel 18, he talks about how David excelled in everything. David was gifted, and he quickly moved up the ranks. And it's not long before Saul puts David in charge of his army, which basically makes him second in command. But it didn't take long for Saul to start feeling real insecure about David. It didn't take long for hatred to begin to develop in Saul's heart towards David. He began to not trust him. He began to think David was gunning for him. (laughs) He began to look at him to the point that he wanted David dead. That's an enemy. When you want someone dead, that's an enemy. But David responded in an incredible way to it. Saul didn't. I'm going to look at how both of them kind of respond. I'm going to overload you with information. It's a great day to pull out your phone and take pictures of the slides. I'm about to, I should really turn this into a series and break every point down, but I'm just going to hit you with them quick today. Saul didn't. Saul struggled in his hatred. He struggled with jealousy. He struggled with jealousy. When it was announced that David had been given this high rank in the army, as David and the army was returning home, they basically threw a ticker tape parade for him, and they began to give out these chants. And the chant said, Saul has killed his thousands. Remember that they said, but David's killed his tens of thousands. And Saul began to get jealous. Look what the Bible says. It's 1 Samuel 18. It says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. A lot of times our hatred comes from jealousy. When we really begin to break down our hatred towards someone else, is it just simply because we're jealous of what they have? Is it jealous, let me back that up, is it jealous at the illusion that we think they have, what we perceive they have? Jealousy will cause you, man, to treat people hatefully. So I was jealous that David was getting these accolades and that he wasn't getting the same accolades. So many times when people are criticizing you or they're mocking you or hating you or so many times when we're criticizing or we're mocking or we have developed a hatred towards someone, it's simply because we're jealous of the situation. We want what they have or they want what we have. 
They don't see the hard work or we don't see the hard work they put into it. We just see the fruit. I, it's always funny to me. I had a man recently tell me, he said, man, you got a lot of events going on. He said, man, you're like an overnight success. And I'm thinking, man, I'm like an overnight success 20 years in the making. He didn't see the grinding and the losing of money and the not being able to pay the bills and getting turned down for my profession and trying to do what I was doing. He, he only saw the mountaintop. He didn't see the climb up the mountain. And that's what we do so many times and it allows us to get jealous. So, sometimes hatred comes not from jealousy, it comes from fear. After David got back to Saul's house, Saul would have these fits of rage and so David would play the harp to soothe his spirit, to try to calm him down serving Saul. Here's this man, the leader of the army, and he's serving the king by using his talents to play the harp. And yet Saul was fearful of him as he did. And the Bible says this in verse 10, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. He saw the anointing on David and he became fearful that the anointing had possibly left him. He saw the writing on the wall and so many times we fear what we can't control and we hate what we can't control and Saul could not control the blessings of God upon David. And he began to get fearful that David was going to elevate into his position. Sometimes it's not jealousy or fear. Sometimes, sometimes it's just pain. Pain is a powerful word to me, pain. It's just one of those words, four little letters and pain. Sometimes it's just pain. Saul had some deep pain. And I think this is one of the main reasons so many times people hate. Deep down, they're in pain. They're hurting. They're dealing with their own baggage. And instead of facing the baggage, it's easier to just hate and blame it on someone else. Saul was jealous of David's popularity. He was genuinely fearful that David was so successful that ever he was given to do. And this was topped off by the pain in his own life. Saul had got so off track that his family had sided with David. Saul's son, Jonathan, and David had developed such a strong friendship that they were like brothers. And, and while Jonathan didn't want to believe his father would actually hurt David, he knew David hadn't done anything wrong. And so he knew that there was a possibility that it happened that he helped David be protected from his own dad. Saul was anger, the Bible says in 2030, 1 Samuel 2030, flared up at Jonathan pain of your own son calling you out. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Always blame the woman. Don't always blame the woman. You'll get in the doghouse. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? <laughs> See, when someone's in pain, logic means nothing. Saul was hurt because his own son had taken the side of someone he'd made an enemy of. It didn't matter that Jonathan was in the right. Sin will make you see some crazy things. Sin will make you justify some insane situations. 
And now Saul's justifying the pain of his son. (laughs) When people are in pain, whether it's the pain from circumstances, of their own actions, or something someone else has done to them, or even from perceived thoughts, they respond by inflicting their pain on others. Maybe you need to evaluate why you hate somebody. Maybe it's your own pain. Or maybe you need to evaluate why someone hates you. So many times when I feel like people are attacking me, I've got to the stage in my life at 44 that I can step back and try to put myself in their shoes and see where they're coming from. It helps me dealing with that situation. Pain. So the question becomes, regardless of why we're hated, whether it's jealousy, fear, pain, How do we as individuals love when God says we're just to love those that hate us? I'm about to get as practical as I've ever gotten in the message. But I'm also about to get as biblical as I've ever got in a message. I'm about to overload you with scripture. And I'm going to do what I feel like I do as good as anybody. I'm going to take that scripture and I'm going to make it super, super simple where you can apply it to your life. Because I'm here to tell you today, there's no more freeing thing in your life than when you get to the point in your life you don't have time to hate. When you don't have time to hold a grudge. When you don't have time to be consumed by somebody who hates you. And you get to the point in your life where you can just love no matter what. The first thing that we're going to do is we have to find our strength in God. Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David, and he helped David, him, find strength in God. Let me make this as clear to you as possible today. It is impossible. I like to say there's a lot of things you can do without God. A lot of things. I've heard people say you can't have a good marriage without God. I I know a lot of people that have had great marriages. And God wasn't part of it. Does it make sense to me? I think it's a lot easier to have a great marriage with God. Let me make that clear. Can't be successful in life without God. I know a lot of successful people based on the world standard of success that are successful without God. Can't be a good parent without God. One of the best parents I know is an atheist. He's a great dad. Great dad. But I'll make this clear to you as I can today. You cannot love your enemies without strength from God. It's impossible. Our human nature is to retaliate, to have an eye for an eye. Human nature, when someone has wronged us, is to destroy them and pay them back. It might be different levels of destroying. You might not be as crazy and as tormented in your mind as I am, so it might not be picture snapping their neck. But in the flesh, you cannot love your enemies without the power of God. It takes a supernatural strength to show someone who's hurt you love. 
And the only way you're ever going to be able to do that is when you truly understand the love of God and the strength of God. Our nature tells us to fight fire with fire, so we can't operate in the natural. We have to operate in the supernatural with the power of God consuming and dictating and controlling and running our life. In the flesh, it's impossible. So we've got to get walking in the Spirit When you look through the the Psalms, David wrote most of the Psalms, you'll see over and over and over how David found his strength in God. Even when David's expressing his frustration, he's expressing it to God, and he knows he has to find that strength in God. You find your strength in God by spending time with God. There's power in being in this book. There's power in communicating to God through prayer. There's power. There's nothing more powerful. I I think it's one of the overlooked aspects of a relationship with God. Preachers preach on prayer and they preach on the word of God. There's something just supernatural about changing the music and just turning on worship music. There's times when my life is crazy and it's hectic and I, I love very weird, depressing country music. That's just what I do. My wife's like, man, you listen to death country. I said, death country? She goes, I just want to slit my wrist listening to it. I love that kind of music. But there's times I have to change the Pandora station and put on worship music. And it's amazing how instantly when that music comes on, whether it's in my office or it's in my car or whether it's in our house, how soothing instantaneously my soul becomes, how the calm becomes, my focus changes. Garbage in, garbage out. We tell our kids that forever, and it's the truth. We need to find strength in God. We need to spend time in his word. He's the one, here's how I look at it, he's the one who told us to love our enemies. So he's the one who's got to give us the strength to do it. So if you say, Gary, I'm struggling with this, first of all, evaluate your one-on-one connection with God. Second, we have to have godly friends. I very specifically chose the wording of this point. Notice that I did not say we have to have good friends. We do need good friends for certain things. But to love our enemies, you've got to have godly friends. (laughs) Because again, the only way we pull this off is through the power of God. I can't tell you how important it is to develop friendships with Christian friends who will help you when you're struggling to do the right thing. Because good friends who aren't godly friends, guess what they'll say? I'm struggling with this person who did me wrong. A good friend would be like, let's go kill them. I got a shovel. (laughs) Trying to connect, they'll feed into it. You have a right to hate them. Guess what? In the flesh, they're right. They'll feed it. They'll throw gasoline on that fire in the name of thinking they're helping you because they're good friends. Godly friends will come along. Oh, I hate godly friends sometimes. (laughs) They'll come along and start asking those tough questions. Why do you think you're feeling that way? They'll go back to the jealousy, fear, pain. Are you struggling in those issues? Why do you think you can't let go of it? 
Man, how do you think God would want you to respond to that? Hate those questions sometimes. Godly friend will come along and say, man, let's just stop and pray about it right now. Godly friend will come along and share a story from the Bible with you. A godly friend will understand what you're going through and they'll understand how you want to respond in your flesh, but they'll come back in a biblical way and say, here's how we should respond. Ungodly friends, a good friend will justify your anger because they think that's what good friends do. Thank God for good friends. But when it comes to loving our enemies, we need godly friends. Because again, we need people who are going to point us in and tune us in to that source of God. They'll remind us that Jesus tells us to respond in a different way, that we respond with love. You got to have that godly friend that'll help you. You need that godly friend that's going to allow you to vent, complain, raise hell about it, not judge you in the process, but love you enough. Don't miss this, because I have learned this about friendship. Let me educate you for a minute on friendship. We are sorry, friends. Because nine times out of ten, we don't have the testicular fortitude to speak the truth to our friends because we're afraid if we speak the truth to our friends, they'll no longer be our friends. Bill Hybels used to call this the law of the 10%. He used to say we say 90% of what needs to be said. But the last 10% changes their life, but the last 10% might hurt their feelings. The last 10% might make them feel not the best about themselves. The last 10% might cause them to evaluate. And so we won't speak the truth into their life because we're afraid they'll quit being our friends. So most friendships are not built on truth. They're built on, hey, just enough truth not to hurt your feelings. True friendship, godly friendship comes along and says, I'm going to speak the truth into your life even if you don't want to hear it. The Bible says this. I'm going to go back to the Bible for every one of these points. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan loved David in a covenant love that he was willing to give his life for David. David, as he's going, and Saul's trying to kill him, and he's on the run, and, and here he is just doing what God's told him to do, and he's already actually been appointed king. God's already said, you're going to be the next king. David's on the run now, and yet over and over, we're going to see where he, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, he, you're going to see where he doesn't even retaliate against Saul because he finds his strength from God. He has great friendships. The third thing that we're going to do is we're going to look to the promises of God. We're going to look to the promises of God. One of the things that Jonathan did to help David find strength in God was he reminded him continually of God's promises. See, here's the deal. David had already been chosen to be the next king. He already knew he was going to succeed Saul. David knew that. But when you're on the run and the king's trying to kill you, you have a tendency to forget the promises of God sometimes. Isn't it funny? Man, I know that God says he'll never leave me or forsake me. I know the Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I know that God will provide for me and my family. But guess what happens? When COVID hits and I realize, man, we just lost seven weeks of what we do for a living, my automatic flesh goes into panic mode. 
I'll, I'll never forget this. It's just the way it worked out. I think it was about the second or third night. They had not shut down things yet because we were at a Mexican restaurant. We were in a Mexican restaurant with David and Sierra. And I'm in freak out mode. I remember just, I, I, I had to be a miserable dinner for them. I don't know what we're going to do. Man, it's the end of the world. Oh, my God. It's, man, they're going to, man, we're done. We're ruined. We're going to lose everything. And I'll never forget David looking at me and saying, no, you're not. It's going to work out. And I remember, I was like, F him. Like, I love him, but God, it's easy for him to say. He's essential. He don't know what it's like. Guess what? Six months into it, I've done more events than I would have done had this not been going on. We've made it through. We've actually added money to our savings account and paid all our bills. He was right. He was simply reminding me of the promises of God. We got to look to the promises of God. Look what, look what Jonathan told David. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We're on the run. We're living in a cave. The king of the nation wants to kill us. And you're telling me don't be afraid? My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king of over Israel. And this shows the awesomeness of Jonathan because Jonathan should have been the king by lineage. And he said, and I will be second to you. Even my father knows this. He said, why are you stressing? Why are you freaking? God's already said what's going to happen. You're going to be the king. Breathe, chill, relax. When God makes a promise, you can take that promise to the bank. And when we're faced with the actions of someone who hates us and is looking to make our life miserable, sometimes the only way we're going to get through the strength of God to flow through us, the only way we're going to be able to make it is to trust God's promises. We've got a book full of promises. And if you actually read the book, you'd know that. How about this promise? He'll never leave us or forsake us. How about this promise? He promises that when we're, when we're tempted to respond in a way we shouldn't, that he'll always provide a way of escape. Always. Guess what? There's a promise that he'll provide strength when we're weary. Man, he gives us his Holy Spirit that gives us freedom from problems. Problems like having enemies. This is a book of promises. The problem is you don't get in this book, so when you're trying to find strength from God, the promises don't come back to you because you haven't gotten the book to know his promises. Claim the promises of God. When we're suffering through pain and anger and frustration, that especially when it comes from someone who set out to make our life hell, our enemy, sometimes it's the promises of God that will sustain us through that. Now, let me make this clear to you. Loving our enemies, finding strength in God, having godly friends, claiming his promises, doesn't mean we become naive. God made promises to David about his protection. But he didn't just hide behind that promise. He protected himself. He made sure he was not around Saul. David still had to be wise with his decisions and his dealings with Saul. 
He just didn't present himself to Saul all the time and be like, hey, I love you, man. No matter Just keep taking advantage of me. It's not what it means. Trusting God and depending on his promises, again, it doesn't mean by mean we become naive. Loving your enemy and forgiving someone for the wrong doesn't necessarily mean they get blind trust immediately. If you pay an account to take care of your finances and they screw you over, guess what? They come and ask forgiveness, you forgive them. It doesn't mean you give them your finances again. That's not what that means. You're in a marriage with someone who gets physical with you and they come ask forgiveness. You offer the forgiveness to them. You love them. It doesn't mean they earn the trust to get back in your home and do it again. Somebody say amen. Amen. Don't mistake love for being naive. We had this weird illusion of love that love means we we forget all things. Forgiveness and forgetting are not the same. Man, all throughout the trouble, David's confronted or is comforted by relying on God's promises. We're going to repay evil for good. We're going to repay evil for good. This is where the rubber meets the road. So we're walking in the power. We got those godly friends around us. We're claiming the promises of God. And this is where the rubber meets. So this is a tough part. It's one thing to keep from responding to hate with hate. It's another to totally flip the script and respond to that hate with love. But Jesus tells us to do that. Look what he says. He came to the sheep pens along the way and there was a cave. This is David. So David's on the run. Saul's chasing David to kill him. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Even kings have to pee. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands, for you have to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed. So Saul's just doing what kings do. I don't know, squatting a, popping a squat, whatever he's doing, I don't know, he's focused. David sneaks up on him in the cave so close that he could have killed him instantly. He could have repaid the evil for evil. Don't miss that. But he didn't. David crept up and nose. He simply cut a corner of Saul's robe off. Afterward, David was conscious stricken. He was upset that he even did that. He found it immature. For having cut off the corner of his robe, he said to the men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him. For he is the anointed of the Lord. He said, God has made me to be the next king, but he has not removed Saul yet. And who am I to come along and even toy with who God has anointed at this time? That's powerful. That is powerful. This man was trying to kill him. He had the opportunity to kill him back. He said, just got a little bit smart, Alec, and cut a little bit of his robe off or he would know he was that close. And he felt even bad about that. But guess what? That's not the only time he had the opportunity. David comes back again because I don't think, I think God knew if I give him just that one story, they'll justify that and explain it away. So he comes right back and does this. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, they're back in there. He comes back again. Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. 
You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. And the Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. That's tremendous power of love. And even that power of love that David showed moved Saul the enemy. It didn't move him to where he changed, but it changed him in the moment where he accepted reality that David was the better man. That he knew David would be the king one day. When we respond with hate for hate, all we do is fuel the hate. Which one of the blue collar guys? Is it Bill Ingwell? They said, man, you know the easiest way to end a fight in your marriage? He said, just get naked. He said, you can't fight with a naked person. Your wife's yelling at you, just take your clothes off. Stay in there. I don't really know what that has to do with anything in the sermon. I just want to share that. No. Oh, here's what it had to do with the sermon. Hey, the best way to respond to hate is just love. Guess what? It takes two people to argue. It takes, they can hate you all day long, but when you respond in love, it's amazing. So there's this dude, I work at this co-working space, and there's this dude that walks around. And I can just tell the dude has an issue. I have no clue who he is. Like, I can just tell. It's so bad. Like, it's a networking place where everybody's talking. This dude, and we actually are sort of kind of like in a line of work that would compliment each other. And I'm like, what's that dude's deal? So I finally asked a buddy of mine that I know. I said, man, what's that dude? He said, that dude hates you. I said, why? Who is he? He said, I think you used to be his pastor. I said, I used to be his pastor? I've never heard of this dude in my life. I said, what's his name? Give me his name. So I'm like, I'm going to go find the dude on Facebook and see if there's some picture that I recognize of him. I type his freaking name, and I'm friends with him on Facebook. I don't have any clue who the dude is. So I'm back, like I'm Facebook stalking. Like I'm back, I'm back 10 years into his Facebook pictures. And sure enough, there's a picture of him in the parking lot at the church I used to pastor. I'm like, oh, I used to pastor this dude. I said, well, it's on now. I am so nice to this dude every time I see him. Man, how you doing today? Man, everything good? This guy just went really through a hard, because once you Facebook stalk someone, the algorithm on Facebook means every time they post, it starts showing up on your timeline. You know, like 15 years of us not interacting. He wasn't on my timeline. Now he's on my timeline all the time. And I saw he just had a death in his family. Man, I went to him and said, man, I heard, I heard about, I don't want to, in case he's watching, stalking me here. I said, man, I heard about what happened. Man, you doing okay? I, I could tell he was speechless. Uh, 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 I said, man, I'm so sorry. Man, if you need anything, Man, if you need help with the funeral, you need anything, man, you just let me know. Man, our church will be glad to help you. I've never let on that I know the guy. And here's what's happened over the last couple of months of dealing with this guy. I've noticed he still wants to hate me, but it's a lot harder. Now he'll tip his hat to me. He'll sort of sit three seats down from me when there's networking going on instead of across the other side of the room. You say, well, what do you mean? Because it's hard to hate someone who's showing you love. Now, the redneck in me, and make no mistake about it, I can get redneck. The redneck in me won't say, hey, I heard you got an issue with me. 
Hey, no offense, I think it's funny. You've been thinking about me for 12 years and I don't even know who you are. That must suck, idiot. Let me backhand him. You say, you would do that? No, I wouldn't do that, but I'm telling you, that's how your pastor thinks sometimes. He ain't right. Okay? But now, you know what I've found out? I enjoy loving on this dude. I find him, it brings me joy. Probably not for the wrong reasons. I'm not there yet in my walk. It doesn't bring me joy because I'm winning him over. It just brings me joy that I make him uncomfortable. But I mean, I'm evolving. <laughs> Repay evil for good. There's tremendous power in love. Tremendous power in love. Man, I know I have loaded you down. One last thing, because this one's, this one's key. And I hope you've taken notes. Maybe I'll repost these notes, because I think they're that important to go back and see over and over and over. Because, man, these steps work if you work the steps. Let God handle your enemies. Let God redeem you. He does a better job than you'll do. Leave the vengeance to God. The reason David didn't harm Saul is because he knew it wasn't his place to deal with Saul. He knew that God had appointed him king and God would remove Saul when God wanted Saul removed. David knew it wasn't his place to remove Saul. He knew that God had a plan. He had a development. He had a growing period for David, and he wasn't ready yet to put him in that role, and that he would remove Saul. Saul's repentance from David that I just read to you, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. It was short-lived. He soon went back to hunting down David. And just like before, David finds him again and has an opportunity to kill him and doesn't do it again. Look at the story. Then David set out and went to a place where Saul had camped. He saw Saul was there. The commander of the army had lain down. Saul was laying inside the camp and the army had campused. David then asked all these names I can't pronounce to go with him. He said, who will go down with me to the camp? I'll go with you. So David and the army went down by night, blah, 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 blah. Saul was laying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were laying around him. Today God has delivered your enemy. But David said, don't destroy him. Don't destroy him. He's delivered him to us, but don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, lives, he said the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. Here's what David said. God can handle Saul, my enemy, a whole lot better than I can. Romans 12, 19 says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Our problem is we want to handle it but God will handle it better. I want to tell you a story. I don't think I've ever shared this story before. Y'all say I share the same stories all the time. So when I lost everything 12 years ago, 11 years ago, whatever it was, I had a pastor friend who was one of my best friends. 
this pastor came out so publicly against me. That's back when blogs were really popular and Twitter was really popular. I mean, this dude was ruthless against me. He started sharing intimate conversations me and him had had and different things and, and just ran me through it. He, he was so vindictive that he actually he had, a, he had a church plant in Cartersville, and they launched a second location in Canton after that because he wanted to think of all the people that had left the church for me being out of the church, insanely in the flesh. He was ruthless. If you ever heard I showed up at a church to even just attend the church, he would call that pastor like, you know who was at your church this week? Do you know about him? He was horrible. This guy attacked me for years and years and years. And I always said, if I ever run into him, that's what I said. I said, I will beat the hell out of him. I obsessed over it. This guy, was, he was just relentless, almost obsessive in his hatred towards me. And remember, this is a guy I talked to almost every day before that. And I mean, I, 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 I obsessed over getting ruined. Like, to the point that it was so bad that on more than one occasion I pulled up to his church on a Sunday morning, was going to go in the church and punch him in the face before he preached. I never got out of the car, so I never did it. Thank God. Then about five years after that, I get an email from him randomly with a hypothetical situation about somebody he knew fixing to leave his wife. I knew instantly he was talking about himself. So I'm like, that's weird. So before I respond, I try to pull up a social media. A guy I hadn't seen it, and all the social media was down. Didn't take a genius to realize he was having an affair. He was fixing to lose his church, and everything he hated about me, he had been doing. And this overwhelming thing came on. You would have thought that in my flesh I would have gloated about it. It was so bad that I actually had mentor, well, ex-mentors of mine that I had not talked to in five years, some of the biggest pastors in the nation, they're like, Sorry, we haven't talked to you in years. I'm sure you're about to hear about so-and-so and what happened to him. Please don't respond the way he did, because they knew, man, at this time I had a whole nother following on social media, and they were scared to death I was going to destroy this guy. And it was weird, man. I wish I could say I do this all the time. <laughs> but this is one of the rare situations where I handle things right. I sent him a text and said, well, I don't know about your friend, but I'm pretty sure it's you. And I want you to know I love you. And if you need anything, I'm there for you. He didn't respond. So for 365 days, every morning I would get up, go to the restroom, brush my teeth, and send him a text. How you doing? Checking on you. Hey, man, I know it's been about three months, so probably right now here's what you're feeling. No response. No response. No response. About five months in, I get a text. Can we meet for lunch? We meet for lunch. And I walk in, and he breaks down, and he's weeping and crying. And he thanked me over and over and said that he went through all this stuff, and I was the only pastor who kept reaching out to him. And he said he thought about killing himself, and my text every morning kept him from doing that. Now, here's the deal. I don't say it to brag on me, because let me tell you something, man, that's probably the only instance ever in my life where I've done the right thing when it comes to loving your enemies. But I'm telling you, man, it was the power of God. I had a pastor friend I would call all the time and be like, I want to, oh my God, I, want, I just want to laugh over what he's gone through. But I couldn't laugh over what he went through because I'd, I'd lost, I knew the pain he was feeling. That guy now has a powerful ministry. And I like to think, man, I, I was able to keep him on track and God used me. And God handled the vengeance 
a whole lot better than I did. When you love your enemies, it's life-changing. And it's hard. But we're called to love. And we're told we'll be known that we're his disciples by how we love. Even our enemies, let's pray.